a few years back, um, somebody made a movie about Martin Luther. I don't remember which. I don't remember which filmmaker it was. Anybody see that movie? It was just called Luther. It came out about four or five years ago. Am I the only one who saw it? I see a few hands coming up around here. Made a movie about Martin Luther, and actually, it was a really good movie. I thought, and maybe for some of you, it brought back a lot of bad memories from Western Civ or something like that. But I thought they did a really good job. Of course, what they had to do to make the movie compelling is they had to emphasize all of the danger in Luther's life, right? They had to, they had to emphasize that scene where he gets kidnapped coming back from the, from the council where he had just made his, his uh, from the Diet of Worms, where he had just made his big profession of his faith. They had to kidnap him there because somebody was out after his head. They were trying to, uh, to, to, to kill him because of how dangerous he was to the church. And that's actually pretty accurate. I'm, I don't mean to suggest that the movie played it up any more than it was in reality. Luther lived on the edge of death because of the things that he believed. The reason he lived on the edge of death is what matters for us today. Part of it it was that he was costing the church a lot of money. He had told people that they didn't need to buy these things called indulgences from the church to knock years off of purgatory. He told them instead that the only thing that matters is, is that you trust in the work of Jesus as enough to recommend you before God. That was Luther's message. Faith alone is what matters. And so it was costing the church money. But there was more to it than that. Luther's message was dangerous in the eyes of many in the church because it seemed to imply that it didn't matter how you lived. If faith alone is the only thing that that matters, if that's what recommends you to God and that's what God honors with with salvation, then why, why should you care how you live? As long as you believe in Jesus, Luther himself would have admitted that the best thing you could do in this life is, is at best, filthy rags before God. And so the people in the church for whom the obedience of their subjects mattered saw him as a challenge to their authority over people's lives. How could they control behavior if there was no threat of punishment on the other end of it? Or if the, the quality of that behavior didn't correspond to what punishment may or may not come down. Does that, I hope that makes sense. That was, the, that was the, one of the issues that made Luther so dangerous. It's an issue that Luther and the other reformers had to address. They had to answer why it, why it is that good works still matter if faith is the only thing that recommends you to God. And their answer is that everything was in the order. Everything is in the order. Does goodness win God's favor? make him pleased with you so that he's willing to grant you salvation? Or does goodness come as a response to the salvation he's already given to you? Is it a a life lived out of the joy that comes from experiencing grace? Or is it a life that is supposed to secure for you a status before God? Their answer was that everything was in the order and that the grace comes first and the goodness, the obedience, comes as a response to that grace. They were trying to restore what they saw in Paul. This is a pattern that goes throughout the letters of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Letters like Ephesians and Romans, where Paul spent a lot of time explaining the details of the gospel. Here are the things that Jesus has done to make salvation possible for you. And then at the second part of his letter, he turns somewhere near the middle of the letter with a therefore. If this is true, if this is what Jesus has done for you, here's how you're supposed to live on the basis of that. Your life is to respond in these specific ways. And for Paul, it was never random. It wasn't just a collection of of maybe memorized prayers that you say at certain times of the day. It was always very specific things that you were to do that were tied to to the things Jesus did for you. Jesus, in other words, the gospel, sets the pattern for those who live 
as those who have experienced grace. That was the inside of Luther. That was the inside of Paul. And ultimately, it's also in the Gospel of Mark. So as a congregation, for the last few months, we've been walking through verse by verse through Mark's Gospel, one of the earliest stories of Christianity and, and, and of Jesus and the things that he did and the things that he taught. And Mark isn't as clear as Paul on the relationship between how we're supposed to live as believers and the things that Jesus did to save us. But that relationship is still there, especially in the second half of his story, which is where we find ourselves today. Mark spent the first half of his story trying to present Jesus as someone who was amazingly powerful, who possessed a distinctive authority over the things in this world that that could only belong to God himself. That was Mark's point through the first half. The second half is a lot more about what Jesus came to do with that power. And the second half turns on the fact that Jesus has to die. From the beginning of chapter 9 on, the disciples march with Jesus towards his death in Jerusalem. All of the story turns on these little bits of teaching about, about his death that Jesus offers his disciples and turns on, him, on them getting closer and closer to Jerusalem where the readers are to know he dies. And in each case that Jesus gives a little insight into, into the fact that he must die, he follows that with instruction on discipleship. Luther may not be, or or rather, uh, Mark may not be nearly so specific as Paul, but he suggests a relationship between Jesus' death and our behavior by putting those those sections of teaching right next to each other time and again. We've already seen it once. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus breaks the news to his disciples. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer, die, and rise again on the third day. Peter says, no way, you're crazy. He calls Peter Satan, tells him to get behind him, and then says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross too. Discipleship, what it looks like to follow Jesus, is defined by what Jesus came to do in his death. Discipleship is taking up the cross. Today, at the end of chapter 9, we get the next teaching of Jesus on his death and another section of teaching on what it looks like to follow a Savior who's going to die. In this case, beginning in verse 30 and going all the way through verse 50, the, the, the bits of teaching are a lot more loose than they have been before. It's very much not like Paul. He, Mark is not giving us a logical argument that moves from point A to point B to point C and concludes with point D. It's more like, it's almost like a collection of quotations. You know, you can go to Borders and get those, you know, America's Founders quotation books, 100 Famous Sayings of Benjamin Franklin or something like that. That's kind of what... A lot of New Testament scholars think we've got here in this section of Mark that he had received this collection of sayings from Jesus and he plugs it in in this part in the story. Some even think that it's random. I think, though, that it's, it's, it's not random. These collections of sayings do come at us rapid fire, almost bullet point style, but they start out with Jesus saying he's going to die. And in that connection, they explain to us what discipleship is going to look like if we're going to follow a a Savior who dies. I think that's how we understand what's coming in chapter 9. There's a lot of interesting stuff in here. Uh, you're going to see it. We're going to read it here in a couple of minutes. There's a couple of, of tales in here where Jesus is interacting with the followers, claiming his name but not really part of his group, and they're casting out demons, and his disciples think they're enemies, and he teaches a little bit about that. There's a, there's a section in here about leading children specifically into sin and how it would be better if you just weren't even born than if you did something like that. There, there are, in other words, lots of, lots of places we could go. But for the sake of time, what we're going to do today is focus on the two largest pieces of teaching in this section, in verses 30 through 50. 
and the examples that those sections of teaching give us for what it looks like to live a cross-centered life. Ultimately, that's what Luther, that's what Paul, and that's what Mark would have us do. Live a life of good works that's based specifically on the fact that Jesus dies. Specifically today, the fact that Jesus dies affects the way you look at others, and it affects the way you look at yourself. In other words, it affects everything. The cross-centered life is a life that puts others first, and it's a life that fights radically against sin. Will you read with me, beginning in verse 30? And would you mind standing in honor of God's Word as we read? I'll also say, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we've got Bibles at the end of each, uh, each aisle at the center. Uh, we, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love it. Actually, if you just go ahead and take that home with you uh, and, and let us know if we can ask, answer any questions uh, you have about it. Now, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. This is, this is the word of the Lord. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. Now, he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed... After three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, first of all, a cross-centered life is a life that puts others first. I know that sounds terribly obvious, maybe even a little bit boring. But I think you'll find that once we get into the details of the passage, it's revolutionary. This insight, as simple as it is, turns the human experience upside down. Here's the setting for the first story, the story that begins in verse 30. 
Jesus and his disciples have just been doing some, some, some work among, uh, among folks in a particular part of Galilee. They've experienced the transfiguration. They've come down and, and Jesus has healed this boy who was possessed by an evil spirit. And now, now they're on their way, getting a little bit closer to Jerusalem. As they're on their way, Jesus uses that time to teach them. And he teaches them, again, almost the same exact thing that he had back in chapter 8. He tells them the Son of Man, speaking of himself, was, is going to be delivered to the hands of men and they will kill him. And he was going to rise again after three days. And, of course, the disciples, just like the first time that they'd heard this message, they don't get it. It doesn't make sense to them. They were expecting a Messiah that would come and establish a kingdom with power that no one could deny, that everyone would have to submit to. That's what they were looking for. And they thought that Jesus was that guy because of the things they'd seen him do. He had this amazing ability to command nature itself. He could speak, and even the waves and the wind would respond to his voice. He even raised the dead at one point. They had seen these things with their eyes, and they were expecting now that he would use that power to establish a kingdom. Now he's telling them that far from that, in this life at least, he's going to be killed. He's going to suffer and die. They don't understand it, but they saw the way Peter got treated when he challenged Jesus. They didn't want to be called Satan and told us to get out of there, and so they, they don't ask him. They keep it to themselves. They come closer to Capernaum, sort of their home base, and Jesus knows from that journey that they were talking about something. Just how little they understand about Jesus' message, about his death, is obvious from where their conversation goes after the dismay that they show. Their conversation goes to the subject of who would be the greatest among them. Don't miss the irony here. They were arguing about who would be the greatest. They're the closest followers of Jesus. And Jesus has told them now multiple times that he's going to suffer and that ultimately he's going to be killed. They follow, in other words, a leader who triumphs by losing, who gains by giving everything away. And here, they're consumed by their own status. They want to know who's going to be the greatest among their little band and eventually, they think, in the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. They're expecting primo spots in the administration that's coming. At least in part, what they're showing is that they've attached themselves to Jesus because they think he can do something to elevate their own status. That attitude applied even within their group. Now, Jesus knows what they're up to. He calls them to himself. He has them sit down and patiently explains yet again just how wrong they are in their view of what discipleship looks like. He calls them to himself and says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It's a similar statement to what he said in chapter 8. If you're going to follow me, if you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose your life. Nothing in this life, no matter how much you could gain, can correspond to the, to, to, to the greatness that comes from giving it all away. That was his point there, a paradox, if you will. Same, similar paradox comes here. If you want to get ahead, if you want to be first, you're going to have to become last, and you're going to have to become a servant of all. That's his principle. That's the key principle. It's a service ethic that applies to everybody. And just how far it applies, just what that all means, comes out clearly in the illustration Jesus offers. He's great at illustrations, vivid images that they they could see and immediately understand. So he sees a child, perhaps someone related to Peter, whose house they were in. Who knows? Calls the child over to himself and says, This, if you want to be my follower, this is who you put ahead of yourself, this child. It's a little bit hard... 
the nature of this claim is a little, falls a little bit flat on us because we live in a, in a culture in which children are celebrated. I mean, celebrated doesn't even come close. The child is an example of who it is a true disciple of Jesus will focus attention on because then children were on the low end of the totem pole. Today, I've been mocking for years parents who... Who, uh, who, who let their kids just sort of take over their house with all the stuff, you know, that just fills up the house and everything is organized around taking care of that little, that little child. And for two months now, I've been a father, and he is establishing little colonies all over our house of his stuff that's scattered everywhere. And now we find that our entire schedule ever is, is organized based on when he's going to eat and when he's going to sleep. He's, he's the center of our world at this point in, in, in some ways that are pretty necessary. That was not the case at all in the first century. They didn't have Babies R Us stores with shelf after shelf stocked with things promising you the perfect, ba- perfect baby. They didn't have those kinds of resources, and they wouldn't have wanted them. Children in the first century were helpless. They were seen not as, as those who didn't contribute anything to society. They were a problem to be cared for. Now, I'm not saying that, that parents didn't love their children back then. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying it wasn't, there wasn't the almost cult-like status that children have for us today. Then, children were those who had to be cared for. They were the least likely to offer you anything in return for what you give them. In other words, if you're out to get ahead, if what you're after is new and better status, where you'd want to start is governors. Maybe the, try to infiltrate the emperor's palace. At the very least, you'd go after the wealthy or, or those who are respected like the scribes. The last place that you would target is children. And here Jesus is turning that upside down. If you follow him, a savior who came to suffer, to give even his own life on behalf of others, then what it means is you start with those who have the least to give you. What it means to be a servant of all means that you even serve those who you can get nothing in return, from whom you get nothing in return. That's, that's the reason the Bible has such a consistent emphasis on how God's people treat the widow and the orphan and the alien and the poor. These are the people who best reflect our condition before God. These are the ones who offer us the least hope for personal advancement. Jesus ultimately came to die for those who couldn't do for themselves, who couldn't repay him in the least. That's the mysterious beauty of the cross, and that is what sets the principle for how we are to treat other people. If you want to be first, you're going to be last, and that means being a servant of all, even the least of these who, have, who can give you nothing in return. That's Jesus' principle. So, what does it look like in practice for us? Put, put negatively, how could we avoid falling into the same error that the disciples had fallen into? How do we avoid, in our own lives, seeking to get ahead rather than seeking to serve even those from whom we can gain nothing? One of the most memorable passages in Homer's Odyssey, another, another perhaps source of bad memories for you guys from Western Civ or something, One of the most memorable passages describes Odysseus' encounter with these sea monsters called the Scylla and the Charybdis. You know, Odysseus had been fighting this battle for Troy. Now he's trying to get home. He's trying to get home in time to keep his wife from marrying some other suitor. And along the way, for years, he's thwarted by all these circumstances outside of his control, by one deity after another. And, And here he comes to this pass in his ship. You've got to go through this pass, and on either side of the pass 
is a, is, is a sea monster that can grab you if you get too close to them. You, had to, you have to split the difference, in other words, between the Scylla and the Charybdis. And I think trying to apply Jesus' principle, we've got to do the same thing. I think there are errors that we've got to avoid on either sides of this pass. We'll call the Scylla just the very natural tendency to put ourselves first, plain and simple, without even trying to hide it. Just the thing that comes as natural to us as breathing is to try to look out for our own interests. If you're honest with yourself, you know that's what you do most of the time. We're inherently selfish creatures. I think you could ultimately trace every individual sin back to that selfishness. Every time we lie to someone, it's because we believe that, that our interest in them not knowing the truth is greater than their interest in knowing the truth. We put our own selfish interests ahead of theirs. You could, you, could go with, you could go this way with any sin. Ultimately traces back to selfishness. So Jesus' statement that we're going to put others first, ahead of our own interests, as simple as it is, is really huge. And it applies to everyone, even those who have nothing to give in return. If that's abstract for you, let me give you a couple examples of what this might look like. If you're married, you get a special opportunity and challenge to put this into practice. One of the most natural tendencies in marriage is to seek what's coming to you to use your spouse for your own good rather than giving yourself to their interests. It, it, it is as natural as breathing. Folks say that marriage brings to light just how selfish we are, and that's certainly been true in my experience. And I think the reason that marriage is that way for us is that it's, it seems so permanent and all-encompassing as a relationship. It's easy maybe to serve a sort of one-off kind of service for somebody that you're not going to see again, who, who maybe wouldn't expect that from you again. You're not setting precedent or patterns. But in marriage, you've got this person who's, who's always there, who affects everything in your life. And the tendency is to think that if you give ground here, then if you give them an inch here, they're going to take a mile. That's the tendency, right? And so you feel like you've got to fixate on fixing everything and making sure that you get what's coming to you, that your rights are established. Now you guys are learning a lot more about my marital psyche than perhaps I should be uh, revealing. But I think if you're honest with yourself, married folks out there, you know what I'm talking about. But the whole purpose of marriage, according to Paul, is to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. This sort of cross-centered living we're talking about, where the things that we do as Christians are not things to win God's favor, but they're a specific response to the things Jesus did for us, Marriage is is set in place specifically to do that. Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 5 that that he's speaking to husbands, but applies both ways. Husbands are to give themselves over to their wives in service, just like Christ gave himself for the church to present her pure and holy and sanctified. In other words, even if it costs you your life, you put that person first, and that's the whole purpose for the relationship. If you're not married, you don't get off the hook. This call to be last, to be the servant of all, extends to every sort of relationship. And let, me, let me say this. This all that Jesus has illustrated with the child, with the ones who have the least to give you back in return, it also applies to those people who are hard to love. So all of you have got people in your life that maybe have wronged you, and you feel like you owe it to yourself to make sure they, they make the situation right that in some way you get what's coming to you in that relationship? Or, or maybe it's not that they've wronged you, but you've got a person at work or school who's, who's tough to love because they've got personality issues, or maybe it's a hygiene thing, or for whatever reason. You all know the, who those people are in your life. Maybe there's a chance that 
loving them and serving them, attaching yourself to them is going to bring you down a rung on the social ladder, and that's what worries you. These are the folks that Jesus is calling us to put before ourselves. And if we want to follow him, if we want to live a life that's, that's defined by the cross that Jesus died on, by that ultimate and all-encompassing self-giving, then we've got to give ourselves in service to all, including those who are difficult to love. Same goes for relationships in our church. One of the purposes of our covenant that defines membership for us is it's a series of promises that we make to each other to inconvenience ourselves on behalf of those that we, that we love in this body. It's a series of promises that are hard to keep and for that reason are sacrificial and put the interests of others ahead of our own interests in being served. And to apply this text very specifically, we've all got opportunities to serve those who have the least, like the child that Jesus used for this illustration. And part of that is children, but opportunities abound for, for those who are poor, who have very little, even in our own city. If you're interested in, in, in following Jesus' teaching in this specific passage, one way to do it is to get involved with our church's ministry to the Somali Bantu population here in Nashville. It's a population of, of refugees who were basically kicked out of their country for fear of death because they were on the lowest end of the totem pole, even in a broken country like Somalia. And now they're here, hundreds of them, living in a new place, trying to figure out what life looks like for them without, without language skills or even the most basic facility in our culture. And our church is building a ministry now among these people to teach them how to read, for instance. And there are opportunities there, and that's, pre- that's precisely the kind of thing Jesus is calling for here in this principle We'd love to help you make that happen. If you want to talk to me or, or one of the other leadership team folks after uh, the service, we can help you get plugged in there. So let's say that's the skilla. It's, the, it's that natural tendency to put ourselves first. Jesus is turning that upside down here. He's asking us to put aside our interests for the interests of others. But there's another danger on the other side, what we'll call the charybdis. Just as dangerous, if not more so, because on the outside, this sea monster looks like faithfulness to Jesus', Jesus teaching and example. It looks like you're obediently serving others for their sake. It's so easy, especially in our southern Christianized culture, to go around serving wherever we can, but to do it to make a name for ourselves, to build a reputation as someone who is known for service. Look at the example of the disciples. These are guys who left everything they owned. They had left everything to follow Jesus. Careers, families, everything to follow Jesus. On the surface, that looks exactly like the kind of self-denial that Jesus is calling for here. You would think from looking from a distance, that these guys got it. But with their argument with each other, what they're showing us is that they've done these things. They've given up these things in order to gain something in this life that they thought was more valuable, in order to establish an identity for themselves as Jesus' henchmen, if you will, as, as his administration, as those who were ranked most highly in the kingdom that he was coming to bring in. Yes, they'd given up some things, but only to gain more in this life. I can so easily slip into our motives for serving each other. How do you feel, for example, when, when no one notices what you're doing to serve? If, if you are legitimately doing something to help someone else out and no one says anything, you're wondering if they actually saw it, does that, does that kind of irk you? Does it get your stomach churning? Does it have you looking for ways to make sure that it gets noticed and acknowledged? Maybe even worse, how do you feel when you are noticed? What does that do to you? Do you define yourself as one who's known for serving? Ultimately, service, obe- service 
Obedience to Jesus can be more dangerous because it's something you're doing to find your value as a person, even compared to other people. It's something that you're doing to make a name for yourself. Rather than being modeled on the cross, in other words, it can become a substitute for the cross. And you believe that you're acceptable to God not because of what Jesus did, but because of how well you serve others. To take it from the bird's eye view, this principle that a cross-centered life is a life that puts others first, this is what it ultimately boils down to. The motive for service, for putting others first, is only cross-centered when we realize that we don't need to fight for our rights or to be noticed for what we do because we have the only acceptance that we'll ever need in the eyes of God through Jesus. Not because we've amassed enough obedience, but because Jesus has amassed enough obedience and he's done it for us. This insight, this truth of the cross, frees us then to stop worrying about building our own identity in this world and to give our attention to those who need our service. The cross-centered life is a life of service because it's a life that doesn't need to establish itself, finds that grounding in Jesus. And it's a cross-centered life because it's modeled on specifically the things that Jesus did. He came here to give himself for others, and that's what, that's what we're to do. I almost hate to do it, but for the sake of time, we've got to skip ahead to verse 43. The other major example that Jesus gives us of what it looks like to follow a Savior who's going to die is a radical battle with sin. In between, as I mentioned, as we've read, we have Jesus interacting with his disciples about those who are not inside their group and how we should treat those who aren't inside the group. We have Jesus talking about the danger of leading little ones into sin. We could spend time on those things, but, but I want to I go deeper on the issue that Jesus develops most in this passage, which begins in verse 43. I think that this is the passage that gets at the main question I started with, the question of the Reformation. If, if the cross is about us getting saved through something Jesus does and not something we do, then what does it matter whether we go on sinning? Remember, the passage starts in verse 30 with Jesus talking about his own death. Then we start getting these explanations of what discipleship looks like. And it comes, we come here to a passage about sin and about fighting sin radically. And the question we should be asking is, what does it matter how we fight sin if Jesus' death is ultimately something explained to us as a work of grace that covers our sin? What's the connection between these two passages that Mark sees no contradiction in, that he's thrown in there together with one developing the other? Pulling from the whole context and from the details of this passage, let me give you quickly three reasons that it matters whether we go on sinning, even as those who have experienced the grace of God in the cross. A cross-centered life means a radical battle with sin for the, at least these three reasons. First, because the cross, as the prime example of judgment, shows us how serious sin is. Let me tell you what I mean here. One of the biggest struggles I have, and I'm guessing I'm not alone, is, is that my sin seems abstract a lot of times. You know, I read about how important sin is and that I'm supposed to hate it and, and, and that it's something that's offensive to God and all this stuff. But, but so often sin is just something, it's a word that I say. It doesn't have any images ta- attached to it. Or I struggle to keep those images attached to it so that it's concrete. I believe that coming to grips with the weight of sin is a lifelong process. That's why growing in Christ often feels like we're getting worse 
Because the more we look like him, the worse our sin appears to us. It doesn't seem like we're getting better and better. It almost seems to us like we're getting worse and worse because sin is becoming more and more odious to us. One of the keys for moving that process, for moving the ball down the field, if you will, for recognizing how severe a problem sin is, one of the keys for that is to look at what, Jesus, at what sin did to Jesus. In the cross, we see how serious sin is. So you ask, why does it matter whether we go on sinning? Because sin is so offensive to God that the only way to avoid destroying everything that he'd made was to absorb that punishment himself. Nothing else would, 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 would do the, the job. Not any amount of sacrifice. He, the writer of the Hebrews tells us there's, there's no amount of blood of bulls and goats that could ever wipe away the effects of this sin. Sin is so serious that the only solution to it was the death of God himself. That's how serious sin is. And if we've truly experienced the grace of God, if we've understood what, it, what our sin cost Jesus, it should make us hate it. That's not contrary to grace. That's the natural response of someone who's seen and experienced grace. So, to summarize, looking at the cross, a cross-centered life, a life that has the cross ever before it as, as the pattern for what it's, a life is going to look like, is a life that recognizes how serious sin is and that is driven to hate sin because of what it did to Jesus. Second, and a similar point, It matters whether we go on sinning because the cross, as the prime example of judgment, shows what awaits those who don't repent. The cross, in other words, and we see this specifically in this passage, is not a promise of universal grace applied to to all people everywhere to the same extent. This is a passage about warning. It's a passage that, that is radical in its prescriptions. If you look at it again, if you look back at the details... Jesus is talking about cutting off the hand that causes you to sin and, 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 and cutting off the foot that causes you to sin and poking out the eye that causes you to sin. And the reason he gives every time is that it's better to enter the kingdom of God with one of those things than it is to enter hell. The cross-centered life is a life that appreciates judgment for sin. And if there is no repentance, the repentance that Jesus calls for, the judgment we see poured out on Jesus in the cross will be poured out on us. I think that's why Mark gives us this teaching here, even juxtaposed to the grace of God that is available in Jesus' death, is as a warning for us to turn to Jesus, to embrace this, the offer of grace that he offers to us as, as a way to avoid this, the, the, the right and just punishment of sin. Now, I know what we want to get from these passages is some sort of sense of what hell is like. We're all anxious to, to look into these details to figure out what kind of existence that is. And I think that's to push these details too far. They're intentionally hyperbole. They're hyperbolic. They're, they're meant to, to, to put images in our mind that are big, that are huge and unavoidable, and, and try to evoke the bigness rather than the specifics. So Jesus isn't necessarily saying you should cut off your hand, just that you should be willing to do whatever it takes to avoid sinning. In the same way, I don't think that there's any sense, any reason to believe that hell is a place of literal fire that's unquenchable or that there's actual worms there that are, that are eating and never satisfied. The point is that it's, it's big and huge and unending punishment. And that's exactly where I'm guessing... 
a lot of you, at least some of you, are struggling to receive this message. This stuff about judgment is hard to swallow. You can't imagine a God who'd take pleasure in destroying creatures that are so far below him. Maybe it seems to you almost like a boy crushing a frog. Perhaps it's because your image of God is dominated by grace and love. You like the image of God who gives himself for others, but can't imagine the image of God who would demand satisfaction for sin. It may seem primitive to you, medieval in some, in some way. And that's where you are right now. Let me, let me first say that I'd love to speak with you one-on-one. I think we could have this conversation better. Uh, and I'd love the opportunity to help put some of these texts, like the one we're looking at now, in context for you. Uh, and to show you that, 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 that the, the promise of judgment is laced all throughout the New Testament. I'd also be happy to talk with you after the service or, or over coffee. But for now, let me say two things just to keep your mind turning in the meantime, just to keep you thinking about this. First, every culture since Christianity was founded has stumbled somewhere on the Christian message. And this one is particular this part of the message is particularly hard for us. In our culture, we valorize grace and love so much that it's hard for us to swallow the idea of a God who demands judgment. If you had lived in medieval Europe, if you lived today in Kabul, Afghanistan, this wouldn't be the part of the Christian message that was hard for you to swallow. It would be the idea that God doesn't demand satisfaction from the one who's guilty. The point is that Christianity claims for itself to be something that transcends all cultures, that it stands above time and in judgment over it. And if that's true, if it's just as true now as it was 2,000 years ago, we should never expect that there was ever a time in which a specific culture did not find it uh, offensive in one place or another. And the question you've really got to ask yourself here is, if the Bible is to be any use for you at all, it seems like it has to come from God. And if it comes from God, it has to have some sort of authority to tell you the way things are from the way that things aren't. And if it has that kind of authority, what good is it ultimately to you if you can pick and choose the things that you do like from the things that you don't like? Think about the question. I'd love to talk with you more about it later. Second thing I'll say, just keep the, the wheels turning, especially if you're someone who, who really connects with the idea of a God who shows grace but struggle with the idea of a God who shows judgment, I would say that the greatest act of grace imaginable the death of Jesus on behalf of others, this act itself only makes sense, only has full weight in light of the judgment that causes his death. It's empty as an act itself, apart from judgment that it's, that it's contrasted to. And there isn't something to be saved for, the Savior, saved from. The, the Savior that we turn to appears far less glorious and His grace far less rich There's no choice to be made, in other words. There's no choice forced by this passage or any other between a God who shows grace and a God who demands judgment. Those two things go hand in hand. Finally, why does it matter whether we keep on sinning? If the cross is there as a a resource for us of grace that we can't ever earn, that is completely sufficient and doesn't require anything from us on top of it, why does it matter how we continue to live? Because the cross, as the model for Christian discipleship, shows the importance of radical self-denial. If the earlier stuff we've talked about was more about how we treat others, if that first point about putting others first is, is what a cross-centered life looks like when it interacts with someone else, 
This last point is more what a cross-centered looks like, life looks like when, when turned inward with the battle against indwelling sin. We've already talked some about how this keeps us from legalism, how the cross and its centrality keeps us from feeling as if we've got to do enough to please God. Here we see that the radical battle with sin is, is one that is set for us through Jesus' call way back in chapter 8 for self-denial as, as modeled on the cross. After first announcing his intention to die, to suffer and die, he tells his disciples that what it will look like for you to follow me is that you will take up your cross. We talked about this then. Some, for some people in the world, that looks like martyrdom. It looks like literal death. For most of us, though, that death march that he's talking about there in the, in the phrase, take up your cross, is more unnoticed. It's much more, much less, rather, glorious. It's, it's something that's day in and day out. What it looks like is dying daily to the things we want most. For us, it means ongoing, unnoticed self-denial. It's modeled in Jesus' death on the cross, but it's also called for in this passage. So in the passage, we were told to be radical in denying yourself. I'd say that cutting off your hand is, is an act of self-denial. Poking out your eye, that's to deny yourself something. Jesus is radical on this point. Sin matters enough that you've got to deny yourself radically. I think that's also the way that we're to, to understand that really obscure phrase in verse 49. This is one of the things that makes the least sense to me about this passage. On the surface, Mark has just said all of these things that we're to do to fight sin, even if it means cutting off your limbs. And then at the end, he gives you the reason for it. He says, for, that's a key word. It indicates what's coming justifies the things that have just been said. You're supposed to be this radical against sin, this, this radical in your self-denial, because everyone is going to be salted with fire. On the, on the surface of it, that doesn't make any sense to me. How does fire accomplish the same things that salt would? And it's still a little bit confusing. But the best explanation of it that I've seen is that these are both images taken from the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, if you have time to look these up later, and then in Numbers chapter 18, verse 19, we get references to fire that must consume the entire sacrifice and that the, the, fire, the sacrifices by fire are to be joined with salt. I think what Mark is doing here, or what Jesus is doing here in in Mark's account, is saying that our lifestyle, this radical fight with sin, is supposed to be a sacrifice that we offer to God that's pleasing to him. It's in response to the, the work of Christ on the cross, but this is what it looks like day to day, to take up that cross and make your life a sacrifice totally consumed by fire and joined with salt. It's what Paul referred to as a life of living sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to God. We could go in many different directions about what it might look like to be this extreme in our fight with sin, to live a cross-centered life that takes sin seriously because of what it did to Jesus, it takes the call to taking up the cross seriously in the nitty-gritty of daily life. I think one, one aspect of it could be our Internet use. So everybody knows that pornography is rampant, right? It's so easy to come by. It plays on sins that are so deeply ingrained that it's, it's something basically universally struggled with. I even remember in college, I was, at a, I was in college at a very conservative Baptist school that was training ministers. And the school counselor would always say that the number one issue people came for counseling with was pornography addiction. Now, 
Maybe if your eye is causing you to sin, you poke it out. I can see Justin's an extreme an application of Jesus' words here. Is you get rid of your internet. I mean, many of us would rather almost cut off our hand or poke out our eye than live without the internet. It is that extreme. But that's the kind of extreme self-denial that Jesus is calling for. Now, let, me, let, me get, let me bring this a little more close to home. It's easy to label pornography because it's, it's, it seems so odious to us on so many different levels. But what about coveting? Just a basic sin of, of coveting things. Wanting something that's not yours that you can't have. Realize that when you covet, what you're doing is committing idolatry. That's why in the Ten Commandments, it's placed after the command to have no other gods before God. When you covet, what you're saying is, I should be in God's chair. Because if I was, I would have this. God has not given it to me, therefore God can't do this as well as I can. Does that make sense, I hope? Coveting is putting yourself in God's place. Could it be that your internet usage is putting you in a position to fall to this temptation? That the things that you look at and want are spur up in you dissatisfaction with the position God has put you in? That they create a greed for things that aren't yours and shouldn't be at that time? Are you willing, in a sin that may be way more pervasive even than, than, than pornography itself, are you willing to take radical action to fight that sin? It's easy to say you should do that if you're, if you're addicted to porn. It's, it's much different if it's about coveting something that, that, you, that you've shopped for online. Ultimately, we could go in any different direction. The point is, be radical in the steps that you take to prevent yourself from falling to sin. And do this because sin is so odious, it cost Jesus his life to supply redemption for us. A cross-centered life is one that takes sin seriously. This is not legalism. What we're talking about is a response to the experience of grace. The cross of Christ sets a pattern for how we live as Christians... It could mean many things, but at least it means that we put others first and that we fight sin radically in ourselves. This is a call that's lifelong. It's never, we never reach a point where we've got it. And time and again, we're going to respond to this call in ways that aren't appropriate. We're going to respond by trying to obey Christ in order to make ourselves look better to God or to others. But it's, it's a call to holiness that is unwavering. And it's one that should throw us back on the cross of Christ whenever we fail. His grace won't fail us when we fail him. Will you pray with me? We thank you, Lord, for the cross of Jesus, not just because it covers our sin, but also because it tells us how we should live before you in holiness. What we ask for is eyes to see this more clearly and hearts that are more willing to follow you. We ask for joy in this journey. We ask that we would respond even in self-denial with hearts that turn gladly to you, that with hearts that hate sin because of what it did to Jesus and what we see it doing in our own lives. We pray for the kind of radical transformation that could lead us to put others in front of ourselves. And what we know is that we're praying for things that are supernatural. That our only hope is the fact that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead after his sacrifice on the cross is the power that's at work in us now. The power of the resurrection is at work in our lives to make us more like him. So we submit ourselves to you and to the 
to the active power that's in us and ask that you would do, you do your work and carry it to completion. We ask you this confidently because we ask it of you in the name of Jesus. We do pray in his name. Amen.